This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Carl Truman joins us today. He's professor of historical theology and church history at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He's taught theology at the University of Nottingham and church history in the University of Aberdeen in the United Kingdom. And he's celebrating 10 years at Westminster Seminary this year. He's the author and editor of many books. Like Noah, he tends to work in twos. He's written two on John Owen, two collections of essays, one entitled The Wages of Spin and the other Minority Report. And he's also done two historical collections, one entitled Histories and Fallacies, and more recently Reformation Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. These and other volumes are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Carl, and welcome to Office Hours. It's good to be here, Scott. Let's start right away. You're a historian, but what is that? What does a historian do? As I see it, a historian studies the past in order to understand that past and also to bring critical insights from that past to bear upon the present. What does it mean to study the past, and why is the past important? For example, Henry Ford said in 1916, history is more or less bunk. It's tradition. We don't want tradition. We want to live in the present, and the only history that's worth a tinker's dam is the history we made today. Was Ford wrong, right? How do you respond? I think Ford was wrong without putting his comment in the whole context and knowing exactly all the implications of what he was trying to say. It seems to me essentially wrong. Ford lived at a particular moment in time that had been profoundly shaped by the actions of those who'd gone before. So Ford himself is a product of history. He occurs at a certain point in time and was shaped by certain forces that had been put into play in the years before his existence. It seems like he's also particularly American. Could you get a European or somebody from the UK to say the same sort of thing? Well, we certainly have some very stupid people uh, in the United Kingdom and in uh, in Europe, so quite possibly one could find somebody who would say exactly the same thing. But I think you're right that there is a particular American aspect of this. America, of course, is a country with a relatively recent history. It's a country built upon the notion of an expanding frontier. It's a notion that typically looks towards the future with optimism, looks towards the future as a time of the realisation of the potential of the present. So I think there are cultural aspects to America that make it a forward-looking country. Of course, I can only say that on the basis of having studied some American history and looking at the forces that (laughs) shape the way Americans think. We came to this continent to some degree to get away from history. And then we have westward expansion, which is in some respects, not in every, but in some respects, a fleeing of history. And then when we, at least at a popular level, go to do history, consider, for example, the interest in genealogy. It tends to be local or romantic. And particularly, I find that among evangelicals, kind of sporadic interest, but typically disinterest. Why should Christians particularly have an interest in history? A Christian should have an interest in history because Christianity is a historical faith. There are two aspects, at least two aspects to that. One, uh, Christianity is about events that happened in history, primarily the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, the church is a historical phenomenon. The way we think today as a church has been shaped by how the church has thought and acted over the ages. If you use the creeds, if you use a hymn book, you're using an artifact from the past that was shaped by the thought and the piety of the church in ages past. 
Um, and I think Paul clearly connects these two when he tells Timothy to hold fast to a form of sound words, uh, when he talks about a handing on the tradition. Paul's understanding is that those events in Christ's life will be repeated and played out in historically particular circumstances that shape the testimony of the church. How do we interest American Christians in history when, for some, maybe many, traditional hymnody begins in the 1970s? I think it's difficult. One of the one of the things that one has to try to do is to get people to realize that they are shaped by historical forces. Why is it that we're only seeing hymns that have been written since 1970? If you're lucky, 1970, more likely 1990 or 2000 these days. What is it that predisposes us towards favoring those things over the, the more historical or traditional? I think it's a faulty understanding of our relationship to the past. So it is difficult to get people who are steeped in the American way of thinking about things, steeped in consumerism, steeped in individualism, steeped in anti-traditionalism, to get them to think in traditional corporate historical categories. Are there theological connections or roots to the contemporary evangelical disinterest in history? There are affinities between certain aspects of Christian life and an anti-historical approach to Christianity. I think one could look at the revivalism, particularly of the 19th century, which I would also want to connect to pragmatism and individualism on the, on the wider social and cultural sphere. But certainly revivalism with its emphasis upon conversion as the absolutely non-negotiable, important thing compared to which all other Christian doctrines and ideas are somewhat subordinate. That, of course, accents the individual, accents the here and now, doesn't place the kind of premium on say, catechizing or creeds that one would find in Christianity prior to that time. I've sometimes wondered if there isn't a connection between the way we sometimes view history and the way we look at the two natures of Christ. The early church had to struggle mightily, beginning from the very earliest part of the second century, to affirm, defend, and maintain the biblical doctrine of the true humanity of Jesus. And some scholars have noted the sort of Gnostic, flesh, world-denying tendency of the American mind. I wonder if you see any connection there. Yeah, I'd not thought of it from that perspective before. It's certainly an interesting suggestion. I'm thinking about Alan Bloom, who's characterized the Gnosticism as the American religion. And some people have appealed to Mormonism as a quintessential American religion. On the one hand, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. On the other hand, bolstered by a patently mythological account of American history. Sure. Certainly, I think if you, if you understand Christianity as, as a way of life or as a set of rules or guidelines, then the, the historical particularity of Christ becomes highly negotiable at that point. Why does God even have to become incarnate? Why couldn't Jesus just have been a very good man and we, we follow his example as he sort of exhibits timeless principles in his life? So, yes, I guess from, from that perspective, one could see the, again, the tendency in American society towards pragmatism, towards that which works, towards wanting a, a rule book or a guidebook on how to live, how to fulfill potential. That would have an anti-historical aspect to it. And then there's Hatch's analysis of the democratization of American religion and the sort of turn toward experience that some have traced already to the early 18th century. If one's personal experience of the risen Christ trumps all other things, then what need does one have of connecting to, first of all, a society of believers, a church, and then beyond that, to a church that existed before me? 
Yeah, mysticism is is in some ways just another form of pragmatism in that it's whatever works for me, whatever it is that transforms me into that which I would desire to be. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Let's go back and talk a little bit more about what it is to do history because the listener may not have extensive training in history or much background, maybe a, a survey course in university or high school or something. What kinds of history are there? And what kind of history do you do? Well, there are various kinds of history. There's social history that looks at, uh, at a macro level at the shape of, of societies. There's military history that looks at the history of uh, military conflict, uh, military techniques, economic history that looks at the movement of capital and economic behavior of societies. There's cultural history that looks more broadly at how societies and cultures understand themselves. The kind of history I do is, broadly speaking, history of ideas. I'm interested in written texts, in how particular thinkers expressed their understanding of the world in written texts. The important thing of all of those different kinds of history is that one must never do one in isolation from all the others. Sure, I'm a historian of ideas, but that doesn't mean that I'm not interested in the cultural, economic aspects of what I do. Often use an example, um, for example, if I was writing a history of the uh, evangelical quiet time as a centre, as a central part of evangelical piety, one wouldn't just look at textbooks of how to do a quiet time, one would also want to take into account that quiet time requires access to cheap print, assumes literacy, assumes that one can find a private space to to have such a thing in. Those are social, economic and cultural factors as well. Presumes the ability to own a Bible. Indeed. And maybe the leisure to get away in a quiet time, a quiet place and read and meditate. Absolutely. Sure. So if I was writing a history, let's say, of prayer, I'd certainly want to do it from the perspective of, I would say, the history of ideas, looking at how men and women understood prayer. But you'd also have to understand that their understanding of prayer was itself shaped by the possibilities, if you like, that the social and economic circumstances which they found themselves offered to them. Going back to the quotation from Henry Ford, he said it's more or less bunk. And he says more than that. It's interesting because the quotation is often cited as if he said history is bunk. And I've sometimes said that myself. There's a certain amount of truth in Ford's criticism because some history is bunk. Talk about the problems in doing history. Why is it difficult? I'd certainly want to agree that bad history is bunk. History is difficult because, to an extent, it's always going to be somewhat anachronistic. The historian works in the present, attempting to impose or to find a retrospective order in actions that have been taken in the past. And there's always going to be a sense in which the historian's own present perspective will shape how he or she will gather the data of the past and how they will interpret it. What are some of the challenges that the historian faces in doing that? good example would be Luther's attitude to the Jews. Luther wrote a fairly uh, vitriolic and anti-Jewish tract in 1543 on, on the Jews and their lies. It could be very tempting for a modern-day historian to interpret Luther's writings there through the category of racism. But in fact, Luther in the 16th century would not really have had a category of race. For him, he was writing against a different religion. The problem with the Jews was a religious problem, not a racial problem. The temptation today, of course, writing on Luther and the Jews is to jump back to the Holocaust and then jump straight back from the Holocaust to Luther. And that involves what a historian would regard as a, a serious category error, a serious piece of distorting anachronism. So there's a difficulty of moving backwards in time and doing it in a way that is historically sensitive, paying attention to the original context in which... Yeah events happened or ideas were articulated. 
Then there are other difficulties that the historian faces in as much as even when you're working in original texts or original sources in their original context, sometimes those things are not always correct or people don't remember things correctly or they lie. How does the historian account for that? You try to gather as much data as you can on any particular event. If you've got a text that says, for example, the Battle of Waterloo occurred in 1815, and another text that says the Battle of Waterloo occurred in 1822, one would go and try to gather newspapers or data that was produced between those two years to see if there is corroborating evidence to ascertain when the battle happens. The historian generally speaking, would never want to hang too much interpretation on a single piece of evidence. We always want to corroborate documentary evidence with archaeological evidence. There are various techniques that one can use in order to establish with varying degrees of certainty whether something happened, why it happened, etc. One of the things that seems to me to mark American Christianity is the love of the new. And this is a country that is all about the new. And the historian then, in such a context, can become a killjoy, which in some cases can lead to skepticism. So when we come back after the break, what I'd like you to address is how can we benefit from the work of historians without becoming either skeptical or ignoring it and being naive? And you can talk about that when we come back. In the beginning, God said, let there be, and there was. God the Father created through his word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son is the Word. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. God the Spirit works through the preaching of the Word. For 31 years, Westminster Seminary, California has stood for the truth and reliability of God's Word. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu. 760-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Well, I assume what you mean by skepticism there, Scott, is something approaching cynicism. Would that be the correct interpretation? Exactly, yes. One of the tasks quite often of a historian is to make people a bit more cynical about the past. Uh, Particularly Christians who are interested in history can often have a fairly naive view. We tend to like... A hagiographical, uncritical biographies of our great heroes, whereas a historian's always going to come in and show that, well, your chosen hero was flawed, he was sinful, he did the following things wrong. Um, that, I think, can be a positive thing because it can be an encouragement for Christians today when they realize that the greatest heroes of the past had feet of clay. They realize they weren't that different to them. It can be encouraging to know that, yes, the Lord has used some pretty flawed people in the past to do some great things, so I shouldn't be too discouraged that I'm a highly flawed person. On the the side of not making people too cynical, that is a tough one. And uh, I think particularly if you were to look at some of the great creedal formulations of the early church, uh, the Nicene Creed or the Chalcedonian formula dealing with, on the first hand, the full divinity of the second person and the other one dealing with the definition of Christ as God and man. When you dig into the background of those councils, the Council of Nicaea, Constantinople, and also Council of Chalcedon, one finds there was a lot of political chicanery going on in the background. And the right side wins, but not always for the right reasons. Those are only the most (laughs) obvious examples from church history. And I find when I teach those classes at Westminster every year, somebody gets a bit concerned at that point. Well, my response then is, ultimately, the Council of Constantinople, the Creed of Constantinople, or the the definition of Chalcedon, they're good because they make sense of the biblical revelation. 
it's important to understand fully the background to what went on, partly because the enemies of the faith will know that, and they won't be backward in coming forward and pointing out the moral problems in some of the motivations of Christians on issues like that. But the thing that makes Chalcedon ultimately authoritative is it makes sense of the biblical data. So I think Christians have a great axiom that enables them not to become too cynical, and that is the biblical revelation itself. The Bible makes it very clear human beings are flawed and sinful, so we should not expect church history to be a tale of more or less perfect people always behaving themselves. Secondly, what those imperfect people do can always be tested by Scripture to see whether it's of lasting value or not. We live, according to a variety of writers, in the late modern world. And by late modernity, they mean it's connected to the earlier phases of the Enlightenment and modern optimism, but it has a somewhat different character. And one of the aspects of the late modern period is suspicion and skepticism and cynicism. And at the heart of the cynicism is the suspicion that there isn't really any truth, there's just power that everything, every claim about something being true or something else being false isn't really about truth or falsity. It's really about your attempt to impose your will on me. How do you address that problem? I think I would want to to go back and say, well, what does Scripture say? And it seems very clear to me that a biblical anthropology, a biblical understanding of fallen human nature would indicate that there's a certain amount of truth to that claim, that we're aware that human beings, as flawed human beings, never act for single motives, never act out of pure heart, that every claim to truth quite probably does involve a certain amount of manipulation on the part of the person doing it. But I think to reduce all truth claims to power claims is highly reductionistic. Where do you stop? It seems to me that we all, whatever one's theoretical commitment to all truth being merely an expression of power, practically we don't live that way. And scripture makes it very clear that truth can be used manipulatively, but there is such a thing as truth. So I suppose I would look at what I would regard as a logical flaw in that argument that just because truth can be used to manipulate doesn't mean there isn't such a thing as truth. The red light does control my behavior. When I roll up to an intersection, and that is an exercise of power, but nevertheless, it really is a red light. And we have agreed that red lights mean that I can't go because if I go, I will get hurt and other people will get hurt. Indeed. The cancer surgeon may well get a huge ego boost out of saving people's lives, but 99 out of 100 sane people would quite like the cancer surgeon to save their life. (laughs) Even though he may be doing it out of mixed motives, he's still taking out the cancer. Okay, well, we've talked about history and what it is and and how it's done and how maybe it's not done and how it's useful. Let's switch tracks and let's talk about your history. You have a history. You've been in the States now living here for 10 years, and you are a professor at an American Presbyterian Reformed Evangelical Seminary on the East Coast, but you haven't always been that. You're a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, but you haven't always been that. When I met you in 1993 or 1994, you were teaching at the University of Nottingham. You were in a different ecclesiastical situation, and your theology was different. Talk about your journey over that period of time and And we'll come back and talk about your American experience. Sure. Well, I was, uh, to take the story back even further, I I had a great, very, very happy upbringing, but was converted not at, but as a result of attending a Billy Graham rally in 1984. 
with no ecclesiastical history. I ended up in a sort of Reformed Baptist kind of framework. I first came across Presbyterianism in the late 80s when I went to Aberdeen University to do my PhD and rented a room from an elder in the Free Church of Scotland there. So out of politeness, went to the Free Church, met the lady who's now my wife there, and that was a great anchor to hold me in the Free Church of Scotland. Returned to England in uh, 1993 to teach at the University of Nottingham and got involved in a local sort of evangelical Baptist church. And I think it was my experience then of, of independency great people at that church, but my impression was everything tended to lowest common denominator stuff. When the congregation is running things, when the eldership is essentially merely responsive to the the congregation, it tended to lead towards a lowest common denominator. So when I returned to Scotland in 1998 and rejoined the Free Church, my ecclesiology had really moved in a fairly firmly Presbyterian direction. I also had two young children at that time, and uh, there were all kinds of questions that having young children was throwing up in my mind that I found my Baptist theology was not capable of answering. So that was when I made the switch to Presbyterianism and I became, uh, I think, an elder in the Free Church Scotland. I think in 1999 I was elected as an elder in the Free Church. When I moved to the States, initially I tried to stay in the Free Church of Scotland but eventually became convinced that that was merely a sentimental attachment to the old country and it was important to be committed to a denomination in North America. And um, as I never cease to tell people I lost the family vote on where to go 3-1 so I became an orthodox Presbyterian <laughs> but I love the OPC now that I belong to <laughs> this is your 10th year in the States and you often comment on life here relative to your earlier experience in the UK and there's a long history of foreigners visitors outsiders coming to the States describing it and we benefited from that going all the way back to Alexis to talk and I have to say my experience is that Americans really do love English guys commenting critically on American <laughs> way of well, life yeah strangely we, we seem to embrace that right it, well, yes yeah in a strange kind of way yes how has your perception of the states generally, but particularly of American Christianity, evolved over the, the time that you've lived here? Because it's one, t- it's one thing to live, as I did in the UK, briefly and develop some impressions or maybe visit. Yeah. But it's another thing to live in a place and, in a sense, exist in two worlds simultaneously. How has it affected you? And- I think I've become much more aware being here of how personality-driven American Christianity is compared to back home. It tends to be driven by particular big names with particular ministries and followings. I think it's made me aware of how little true confessional thinking there is back home. When I even compare the Free Church of Scotland to the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, I've learned a lot more about ecclesiology and thinking confessionally here than I did uh, in a denomination that I love, still love, and was an office bearer in for some years, but didn't, I think, think as confessionally as as the OPC does. I've become more sceptical, I think, of the evangelical label as the years have gone by. It works back in the UK because the situation is quite different, but here... How is it different? I think back home, there are just very few Christians for a start, and evangelical generally does tend to mean orthodox Christians, often of a four or five point Calvinist perspective. Over here, it carries connotations of parachurch, almost a celebrity kind of culture, less of a concern for doctrine. I think what I have to say, evangelical back home is more clearly doctrinally defined, even though people don't typically think confessionally. Evangelicals tend not to debate many of the central confessional points of Christianity, whereas over here, evangelical 
by and large, seems to be a catch-all term for a loose network of institutions, ministries. And maybe even common experiences. Common experiences, yeah. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Let's go back to the UK for just a moment. We're coming to a point in history where some of the elder statesmen of English or British, more broadly, evangelicalism, are leaving us. John Stott died not long ago, and I'm thinking of John Wenham, and some of the other uh, elder statesmen are even more elder and coming to the maybe towards the end of their active ministry. What do you think about the recent past of British evangelicalism and the future of it? It certainly produced some great figures in the last 50 to 100 years. One thinks of Martin Lloyd-Jones, James Packer, John Stott, though, of course, John Stott was always a little bit more wobbly on the first things and the last things than many Americans would seem to acknowledge in the various plaudits that have come his way since his death. So it certainly produced some great and influential names. I think the church on, a, on the whole in the UK, the evangelical church is shrinking, which is unfortunate and sad. It's very much on the, we would say, cr- use a cricketing analogy, batting on the back foot at this point. It's on the defensive. I am encouraged that there are some very talented young leaders coming through. Think of some of the guys based at Oak Hill College in North London. Think of the John Owen Centre at London Theological Seminary. So England is producing some great, talented, bright pastors. The question, I think, for British evangelicalism at this point is, is it ready for what is becoming an increasingly militant onslaught from secularist world in the UK. Only time will tell. One last question. You're now, as a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, you're part of a relatively small world compared to the 60 million American evangelicals around us, and that's the North American Presbyterian and Reformed Council, maybe five, 600,000 people thereabouts. How do you look at the future of American Reformed Christianity? I think there are some major challenges coming. Clearly, within certain denominations, it seems that there's almost within certain Presbyterian denominations, almost quasi-Episcopalian churches and structures being set up within a Presbyterian structure. I think that's problematic. I think there's a problematic focus on a few personalities. I'm concerned that some parachurch organizations are attempting to seize the overall agenda for a kind of mere Reformed Christianity that I think is, is inimical to good ecclesiology. And I think that the focus on big movements ultimately distracts from where the real action takes place, and that's at the local level. And we mustn't forget, as we look towards big celebrity leaders, that actually the day-to-day work at the coalface is done by small churches in local communities. Not mega churches, not big celebrities, but it's done by local churches, unknown pastors, in small, unknown locations. And I I fear that the, the glamour and the glitz will lead to an eclipsing of the encouragement of and prayer for pastors beavering away in tough spots. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.